2: If you follow politics at all, then you will remember that President Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, held a news conference right after the 2020 election. It was held, if you remember, at four seasons total landscaping, a gardening business just off the interstate in Philadelphia nestled in between an adult bookstore and a crematorium. Honestly, I don't know that we ever definitively settled on why the press conference was held there, but the whole reason Rudy Giuliani trotted himself out that morning in front of the gardening business was to baselessly claim that the election had been stolen. The real chef's kiss here is that that fever dream of a press conference took place exactly as national news networks were calling the election for Joe Biden. And honestly, as unbelievable as that series of events was, it was not even the most memorable news conference that Rudy Giuliani held that month. Just over a week later, Mr. Giuliani held another one where he appeared to be, for lack of a better term, melting. During that presser, he claimed that Trump had won Pennsylvania by 300,000 votes and Michigan by 50,000 votes. Mind you, there was no evidence of that, but he promised it was coming. Giuliani made those claims alongside another Trump lawyer who alleged that the election had been stolen by the Venezuelans and the Cubans and the Chinese and that the voting machines had been hacked by Hugo Chavez, even though Hugo Chavez had died seven years prior. All you had to do here was connect the dots. So those bizarre spectacles were memorable, but they were just the, what shall we say, the amuse-bouche for what was to come. By early December, Giuliani had testified before Georgia state lawmakers spreading an elaborate conspiracy theory that two poll workers had brought in suitcases full of fraudulent Biden ballots and scanned those fraudulent ballots through the tabulation machines multiple times. Giuliani showed surveillance video that he claimed showed the poll workers exchanging USB memory sticks, saying it looked like they were passing vials of heroin or cocaine. In reality, that video showed one of the women passing the other one a ginger mint. The effect of that testimony, though, was that those two women's lives were destroyed. They faced death threats. They were forced to quit their jobs. They went into hiding. And yet Giuliani's conspiracy theories did not end. They rolled on like a freight train. The January 6th committee uncovered substantial evidence that Mr. Giuliani had personally pressured officials in swing states to draw up alternate slates of electors, proclaiming Trump the winner in states that Biden had actually won. To this end, Giuliani called the Pennsylvania House Speaker on a nearly daily basis. It did not matter that that lawmaker's attorneys eventually told Mr. Giuliani to um, please stop. Giuliani kept calling.
3: Mr. Speaker, this is Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis. We're calling you together because we'd like to discuss. Obviously, the election. Hey, Brian, it's Rudy. I really have something important to call to your attention that I think really changes things. I understand that you don't want to talk to me now. I just want to bring some facts to your attention and talk to you as a fellow Republican.
2: Giuliani did the same thing in Arizona, again, uh, pushing for state officials to overturn the election results. And when Giuliani was pressed for evidence of voting malfeasance, well, he famously admitted, quote, We've got lots of theories. We just don't have the evidence. Aside from pressuring lawmakers, Giuliani helped file a raft of baseless lawsuits with other members of Trump's dubiously named elite strike force. More than 60 cases were brought forth on the president's behalf and none of the allegations of fraud panned out. As things grew more desperate, Giuliani took part in an hours-long meeting in the Oval Office in which he and other outside advisors batted around the idea of having the military seize voting machines. And although, although he thought that was maybe a bridge too far, Giuliani personally asked the Department of Homeland Security about seizing those voting machines. When all of this went nowhere, Giuliani became a key part of the president's war room at the Willard Hotel near the White House. In that room, Giuliani geared up with other Trump loyalists for the last stand, an effort to block the certification of electoral votes on January 6th. And on January 6th itself, Rudy Giuliani famously stood in front of thousands at the Capitol and made these remarks before all hell broke loose.
0: If we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. So, Let's have trial by combat. I'm willing to stake, I'm willing to stake my reputation, the president is willing to stake his reputation on the fact that we're going to find criminality there.
2: It is by no means an overstatement to say that Rudy Giuliani was a central figure in President Trump's effort to stay in power. And that history is worth remembering because it makes this latest reporting today From The New York Times, all the more notable. According to The Times, Giuliani was interviewed last week by federal prosecutors investigating Mr. Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The voluntary interview, which took place under what is known as a proffer agreement, was a significant development in the election interference investigation led by special counsel Jack Smith and the latest indication that Mr. Smith and his team are actively seeking witnesses who might cooperate in the case. The session with Mr. Giuliani focused on the ways that Mr. Trump sought to maintain his grip on power, including the fake elector scheme, the conspiracy theories pushed by Trump's legal team and the scene at the Willard. A political adviser to Mr. Giuliani says that the appearance was entirely voluntary and conducted in a professional manner. Now, it is worth noting exactly what a proffer agreement entails. As the Times notes, a proffer agreement is an understanding between prosecutors and people who are subjects of criminal investigations that can then pre- that can proceed a formal cooperation deal. The subjects agree to provide useful information to the government, sometimes to tell their side of the story, to stave off potential charges or to avoid testifying under subpoena before a grand jury. In exchange, prosecutors agree not to use those statements against them in future criminal proceedings unless it is determined that they were lying. This is certainly reporting that makes you sit up and pay attention, and it also raises a whole lot of questions. Joining us now is Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security and now executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. She is also, of course, a co-host of the great MSNBC podcast Prosecuting Donald Trump. Also with us tonight, Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia and a current partner at the law firm Moore Hall in Atlanta. Mary and Michael, thank you for joining me. My first question, Mary,
4: is... Who approached who
2: here? Giuliani
4: or the special counsel? Well, I didn't see that in the reporting, and so I'm not sure. And it could be, it could go either way. I mean, sometimes in in investigations that I took part uh, in, when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and also even at the National Security Division, when we were getting close to an indictment, or sometimes even early on in those in stages of an investigation, we would reach out to people who had information we thought could be very helpful, and and offer them that opportunity to come in uh, in uh, accordance with a proffer agreement sometimes called a queen for a day agreement because that agreement says you come and tell us things and you're essentially queen for a day. We can't use anything you tell us against you if you were ultimately to be prosecuted with one caveat, that being you can't lie if you lie all bets are off, we can use all of this against you. But oftentimes it also would be instigated by the defense attorneys who were either worried that potentially their client was about to get indicted or even sometimes early on an investigation just wanted to get out there in front of it and try to stave off anything, including even as the New York Times reporting said, uh, a grand jury subpoena. So it could go either way. And And it sometimes, you know, it's thought by both sides to be beneficial, right? The defense wants to get that chance to say, look what useful information I have. Uh, In the hope that you will not end up in a plea agreement, but will end up just completely, uh, you know, not prosecuted at all in return for your information. And the government gets to kind of get a little sneak peek. What do you have to say? Use it, uh, you know, to corroborate things they may already know, learn new things, and then decide if they want to enter into some sort of cooperation agreement with the particular individual.
2: Yeah, Michael, I mean... The specter also of Fannie Willis and her criminal investigation down in your state in Georgia has to figure into this as well, would it not?
3: Yeah, well, I'm glad to be with both you and Mary, and I, and I do think it probably plays in at some point. I mean, they're, they're very different investigations. On the one hand, you've got the special counsel who's really investigating sort of things on a national level and how this played from state to state. and group to group, and down here in Georgia, you're, you're dealing with a district attorney, a locally elected district attorney, who's simply looking at violations of state law and whether or not those were committed. Now, the problem for the former mayor of New York City is that he came down here and said some things that were not apparently true uh, to the state legislature. And so that places him in a different kind of jeopardy, maybe, than he's dealing with, with, with uh, the special counsel at this point. So, I think there's a little bit of an interwoven uh, story here to be told, but again, they're in different courts, they're different prosecutors, they're different allegations. And I'm not so sure that any type of proffer agreement that the special counsel made, unless his lawyer happened to work this out amongst all the jurisdictions, is going to have really any impact on the George investigation right now.
2: Mary, what's your view on that in terms of the degree to which the special counsel is even thinking about Fannie Willis and her investigation? And the fact that she's basically telegraphed that uh, charges may come at the end of July or early August in terms of Jack Smith's own time frame for all this.
4: Yeah, I mean, I agree with Michael with respect to sort of how the proffer agreement might factor in. I mean, he's, uh, Rudy Giuliani is sort of facing different things uh, in Georgia and in the Jack Smith federal investigation. But I do think the timing to your question for Jack Smith, the timing is important. I mean, he's got to be thinking about uh, the the time frame that Fannie Willis indicated, you know, a special grand jury or the grand jury coming back in August and her actually asking The court there, the state court, not to hold court for a few weeks. Um, And that certainly was a signal to a lot of us that maybe there was going to be action during that time period. And she was trying to make arrangements. She's been very concerned, of course, about public safety and the whole environment that comes with charges against a former president. Um, And so Jack Smith has probably got that Timeline in mind, but he also has the timeline of if I'm going to bring an indictment, will I, and, and if it's going to involve Donald Trump, will I be able to get to trial before the election in November 2024? So I think he's got both of those things in mind. And he certainly may have a reason to want to beat Bonnie Willis to it. I mean, uh, he's a, he's a federal prosecutor. His case is bigger, it's more expansive, um, and, you know, might want to just get uh, a jump before Fannie Willis comes in with her case, uh, but I think he's he's really going to be, and he also has other case, another big case he's prosecuting too, and he's got to think about the timeline for that as well.
2: Um, Michael, in terms of, I mean, Giuliani knows a lot about what went on in terms of Trump's efforts to undermine the 2020 election. Of the of the reporting that we have, we know that special counsel investigators are are focused on a few areas. One, the slates of fake electors. Two, the roles of other lawyers, including John Eastman and Sidney Powell. And three, the, the scene at the war, the war room scene at the Willard Hotel on January 5th. If you're looking at those things, which of wh- what is of most interest to you in terms of what Giuliani can give you? What is the most useful for a federal prosecutor in terms of his vantage point?
3: You know, I, I really think it's likely the the idea of the fake electors. And that was because it was happened across multiple states and that's something that federal prosecutors look at. You know, how broad is the net? How do I get outside one state's jurisdiction? Do I look at, you know, sort of, have we crossed state lines with this crime or with this fraud? And I think in, the, in, in that instance, they have. We know that the special counsel is interested in this because he's been talking to other witnesses. He's had people come in. He's had folks in other states come in and talk about how this got set up. And so um, the idea that the architects of this scheme uh, uh, might somehow be of interest to him uh, w- would be important. And whether or not Giuliani is one of those architects, that's what he's he's looking to find out, I think, at this point. Uh, so I, I think if I were looking at it, and I do think as just a matter of fact that the case is better prosecuted in the federal courts, Because of this, and because of sort of the historic nature that we're talking about with a former president, but also because you have a federal court who sort of reaches outside of the the territorial jurisdictions of state lines and says, "Look, I'm going to talk about everything that happened from from here to the, you know, to the West Coast," and so that's that's going to be important. So, you know, my my guess at this point is probably he's interested in that, and that's where he was looking at Giuliani about having some information how that came about. It's not illegal. To think about alternative legal plans, it's not illegal to think about strategies that may be out there. Now, I'm not saying any of them really had merit to you know folks who believe that the earth is is round and not square, but but that that's where we are right now. So, if he's thinking about, look, how do I move forward with a possible criminal case? How do I get information about what may be out there? The idea that th- people were thinking at the time after they by all accounts, had lost an election and should have known that. And they're thinking, well, is there something else we could do? Is there anybody any, anybody else we should talk to? Is there, any, is there any other people that may have some information? That may not be legal. But the idea of having individuals come in and say, I'm an elector now, or maybe do something that appeared to be fraudulent or filing false statements or giving false testimony, making false representations to the courts or the legislative bodies, that's a different thing. And so that, by <coughs> all appearances, is where he's looking.
2: Well, yeah, and and to be clear, the Earth is uh, round; it is not square. Um, and, well, some, and, of and, <laughs> yeah, some of us, Mary, uh, you know, the other Pete. I mean, to my to Michael's point, setting aside the the scheme or the backup plan of false electors. Giuliani can speak to Trump's knowledge of whether or not he actually thought the election had been lost, whether he knew what he was doing and saying was fraudulent, and the degree to which he was personally involved in the recruitment and the, the strategizing behind these will, knowingly false slates of electors going forward, right? I mean, that seems—Trump's involvement here, Giuliani, seems to be the key and the lock to, to basically blowing that open.
4: Yeah, that's absolutely right. All of those things. And, you know, I think in addition to looking into the fraudulent elector scheme, and I agree with Michael that sort of initially, if if you're still litigating in certain states about who the winner is, it's worth, you know, having conversations or strategies about the Trump electors. But remember, by January 6th, all of the litigation, you know, had been resolved against Mr. Trump. In those swing states, decisions had been made by the court that Joe Biden was the winner. And nevertheless, Uh, There was still this effort to get those slates of electors to the vice president on January 6th. I mean, some of the witnesses who have recently been talking to the grand jury and and to Jack Smith, including um, Michael Roman and his deputy, were on January 6th trying to get those false slates of electors to the vice president. And so I think what Jack Smith is trying to do here is be able to tell the big picture story and do all the things you just indicated, Alex. Right. Like what did Mr. Trump know? What did he believe? Who had told him? And we know some of this from the House Select Committee that all of his top advisors had told him that there was no fraud in the election significant enough to make any difference in any of these swing states. Uh, What did he know about the fraudulent elector scheme and the status of the litigation in the swing states? Um and you know, what was his involvement? Certainly, you know, he was involved in, in pressuring some state officials, such as Secretary of State Raffensberger, others of in his orbit pressured other state officials. And I think there's another aspect of this besides the fraudulent elector scheme that I think is also on Jack Smith's radar, and that is the fundraising that he was doing based on uh, his um, claims of fraud in the election. Fundraising supposedly to actually continue to litigate the, you know, his claims of a fraudulent election, and you know that is a real bread and butter kind of case for the government to make if there is fraud in the solicitation of money. Um, that's that's a pretty simple why fraud type of case. So I think that's another place that Jack Smith is looking um, bite-sized things. You know, he'll tell a big story if he brings an indictment, but he doesn't need to, you know, boil the ocean and bring every possible charge that he could. He needs to be able to have a coherent um, theory and uh, tick off all of the different elements of that for the jury and for the public.
2: Yeah, which is what he's doing in Mar-a-Lago, right? Simple willful retention of documents, straightforward, not bringing in the Bedminster tape, just going with what they have. And to your point, it remains to be seen if he takes that narrow, very provable, not novel path forward on something like January 6th, going for something like wire fraud. We will see. Mary McCord, Michael Moore, thank you both for your time and expertise this evening. I appreciate it. We have a lot more to get to this evening as the state of Texas suffers from a lethal heat wave. Some recent moves by Republicans are not doing anything to cool things down. Plus, in Russia, another plot twist in the attempted mutiny by mercenary fighters. We'll have more on that coming up next.
1: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories
2: If you remember, last weekend, as Yevgeny Prigozhin, the chief of the Russian mercenary group known as the Wagner Group, was launching an open rebellion against the Russian military, Russian President Vladimir Putin was nowhere to be found. He wasn't talking to reporters. There was no official statement. He was effectively missing in action, despite the most dramatic challenge to his leadership in 23 years. And when Putin finally did surface some 48 hours later, he only did so... To deliver a short message that raised more questions than answers. But now, President Putin can't stop talking. On Monday night, he met with his Security Council, a televised event showing Putin sitting near his generals. Yesterday, the Kremlin rolled out the red carpet, literally, for Putin to deliver another speech thanking the military. Then he met with a group of military servicemen, a meeting the Kremlin also put on national television. And with these messages, it appears that Putin is intent on spinning what really happened this weekend, which is that a convoy of thousands of mercenaries launched a rebellion with no one in sight to stop them. Now, we have some clues as to why that may have been the case. The New York Times, citing information from U.S. intelligence officials, is reporting that a key Russian general, a man named Sergei Sorovkin, knew about Prigozhin's insurrection all along. In the Wall Street Journal reports today, Prigozhin's plan was to capture Russian military leaders, likely with the help from other Russian officials. Prigozhin originally intended to capture the defense minister and the chief of Russia's general staff, but the Federal Security Service found out about the plan two days before it was to be executed. Prigozhin's plot relied on his belief that a part of Russia's armed forces would join the rebellion and turn against their own commanders. Western officials said they believed the original plot had a good chance of success, but failed after the conspiracy was leaked, forcing Prigozhin to improvise an alternative plan. The Kremlin now claims it, too, knew about Prigozhin's plan ahead of time. But if it did, why did the Kremlin not stop him? And why was Prigozhin's Wagner group able to take control of a large Russian city without firing a single shot? Well, I have just the right person to ask. Joining me now is Andrei Kozyrev, former Russian minister of foreign affairs. Mr. Kozyrev, thank you so much for being with me tonight. And I first would love to get your perspective on whether you think Prigozhin did in fact have internal support and whether he would have gotten this far without it.
5: Well, I think that he had uh, some contacts and uh, definitely he has friends uh, in uh, the, the army uh, because Uh, He was fighting in Ukraine and he was fighting in in other places with their support. And as Putin now uh, let out, uh, uh, the the whole uh, arrangement, as it was clear for me, for instance, and many other observers even before, uh, that it was just a state enterprise. It's called private company. But... Nothing private uh, when they get uh, weapons from the uh, Russian state. They were paid by the Russian state. So they are just another department, so to say, of the Ministry of Defense. And that's uh, why he he knew a lot of people. And many of them, many in Russia, um, in, in, in the military in particular, are very... Um, uh, disillusioned with what happened in Ukraine. They thought it would be blitzkrieg, but uh, it uh, turns out a long and bloody war and uh, many of them are uh, critical of the leadership. So he had all uh, kind of um, grounds to believe and maybe some conversations which encouraged him to believe that he will be supported. And, uh, what is important to understand that he did not plan to overthrow uh, Putin. So the, the language like putsch or, uh, insurrection, that, that's misleading. It was just idea to change the, uh, leadership of the Ministry of Defense in revenge and, uh, Many people would be uh, very sympathetic. I mean, very uh, military people uh, would be uh, very sympathetic with that. But uh, they are also covered, like himself. They are, uh, and uh, that's why it failed. Um, but uh, Putin uh, definitely panicked and that's why he went out say, speaking of the civil war and all, all that nonsense and now he's uh kind of trying to calm down and meeting with the people and meeting with his um entourage and, uh, and military and and uh, police and uh, all that uh, so it it shows that he he's not a strong man in a literary sense, he's just a strong man as a dictator uh, and he is a dictator, but uh, he's, um, you know, uh, covert. Uh, he is trying to hide everything now, put it under the rug. But you know what, of course they knew a lot because that's the uh, organized crime. Organization, the Russian leadership, the Russian government, the Putin's regime is just a mafia. Um, and uh, in mafia, people know each other and they conspire against each other and they uh, conspire and they fight all the time uh, uh, in hidden places, though, uh, to get a better uh, piece of piles or something like that, you know, so they they are fighting inside for power. And Mm. that's what it was. It was just an episode of the fight for power inside criminal organization.
2: Yes. And in the process, Putin may have lost two of his most effective fighting forces in Ukraine, uh, General Sorovkin and the Wagner group. We will see. We will see how it all pans out. Andrei Kozirev, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. When we come back as a brutal heat wave makes Texas one of the hottest places on Earth right now, certain Republican politicians would rather let people die than pay for air conditioning. Stay with us.
0: Hey, everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call.
4: I come to you with a heavy heart this morning. Um, In the last eight days in our county, we've lost nine residents to this heat.
2: That was the Webb County, Texas, medical examiner on Monday at the U.S.-Mexico border. Since then, two more people died in Webb County from the current heat wave. Last Monday, more than 500 miles away on the other side of Texas, a 35-year-old power line mechanic died after stopping work because of heat exhaustion. The next day, another 200 miles away in Dallas, a U.S. Postal Service worker died on the job. These deaths are not outliers. They are the new normal. Last year, Texas saw 279 people die from heat-related causes, and that number is likely an undercount. So how is Texas's leadership setting up the state to handle this new reality? Earlier this month, Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill that eliminated city and county workplace safety ordinances for outdoor outdoor workers, like mandated water breaks and required rest. Eliminated. Now, tens of millions of Americans from Arizona to Florida are sweltering under this heat wave, but Texas is currently one of the hottest places on Earth, with temperatures rivaling the Sahara Desert and parts of the Persian Gulf. Yesterday, the Texas power grid, which is the thing powering all of the air conditioners in that state, yesterday demand on that power grid surged to its highest point ever. And for the most part, the power actually stayed on. You may remember that that same power grid failed after demand surged in a winter storm about two years ago. At the time, Texas Governor Abbott blamed green energy for the grid's failure, despite the fact that the state ran mostly on fossil fuel power and it was the fossil fuel part of the system that failed. So you may be wondering, how has the Texas power grid stayed on this time around? The answer is green energy, specifically solar power. The amount of solar energy generated in Texas has doubled since the start of last year, and experts credit that increase with keeping the power grid online. But when pushing a proposed tax incentive program for energy production in Texas earlier this year, Governor Abbott's big red line was that no renewable energy projects be included in it. I support
3: it not uh, providing economic incentives for renewables as it concerns especially energy and power and the power grid. Uh, Our focus is on dispatchable power, to make sure that we will have the needed dispatchable power to provide reliable electricity to everybody in the state.
2: And then there is the Texas prison system, where more than two-thirds of prisons do not have air conditioning in living areas at all. Today, the Texas Tribune reports that since this latest heat wave gripped Texas, at least nine inmates have died of heart attacks or unknown causes in prisons lacking air conditioning. Earlier this year, the Texas State House budgeted more than $500 million to install air conditioners in all Texas prisons over the next decade. But last month, the Republican-controlled state Senate rejected that proposal. Now, that may sound like a lot of money until you realize that Texas currently has a nearly $33 billion budget surplus. We are in this wild moment in which red states are at the forefront of some of the gravest impacts of climate change, and at the same time— Republican leadership in those states is so adamant about not acknowledging climate change, not being cowed by the libs, they are literally letting their citizen die. We are going to talk to one of the Democrats pushing for some real sensible action here coming right up next. It is suffocating. It's terrifying just to feel like you're cooking. And i remember asking my bunkie, I was like, do you think that our brains are frying? All of these women that were suffering with me had not a lot of time and uh, feared that they were getting death sentences. That was Maggie Luna, who was convicted of drug possession and served two years in Texas State Jail, which is the maximum sentence. But two years felt like a death sentence for Luna and the other women in that jail because of the heat, which was in the triple digits. With the state now shattering heat records, state lawmakers in Texas have attempted to pass laws to protect inmates in the summer by requiring air conditioning, but Republicans have largely tanked those efforts. Texas's inability or its resistance to respond to this climate-related crisis is not that different from what happened in the state after its 2021 winter storm, when mass blackouts resulted in hundreds of deaths. After that deadly winter, Democratic State Representative James Tallarico tried to pass a climate action bill calling the storm a wake up call. But his bill failed in committee again on party lines. In the meantime, Texas is grappling with the deadly reality of a change in climate. And instead of enacting measures that might help its citizens adapt to rising temperatures or at the very least survive them, Republicans in the state have sought to roll back assistance and unwind regulations and make Texas a sanctuary state for the oil and gas industry. Joining us now is Texas State Representative James Talarico, who, again, authored one of the many climate bills that Republicans in the legislature have stifled, as well as New York Times writer and columnist David Wallace-Wells. Thank you both for being here tonight. And um, Representative Talarico, let me just start with you, since we, we talked a lot in the wind-up to this about Texas and what's happening there The I am struck by the inherent cruelty of some of these Republican lawmakers who understand very much that their constituents are dying because of this heat and seem very, I mean, just uninterested in doing the basic, taking the basic measures to help them. Can you offer any insight into why the resistance in in terms of, for example, putting air conditioning in Texas prisons, which, which get to be in the triple digits in terms of heat?
6: Well, if you grew up in Canada, like Ted Cruz, or you grew up in Maryland, like our Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, you may think that Texas summers have always been this hot, but Texans know that our climate is changing. You know, I'm an eighth generation Texan. My family's been here since since it was Mexico. And I remember on summer days, just like this one, I could ride my bike all day long when I was a kid. It was hot, but it wasn't this hot. Now we are quickly approaching the point in this state when it may be too dangerous to let our kids outside to play in the summertime. The last eight summers have been the hottest summers in recorded history. Just in the last decade, Texans have faced historic droughts, devastating wildfires, five 500-year floods, and the deadliest winter storm in our state's history. This historic heat wave is not the first climate disaster, and it will not be the last. But in the last legislative session, Republican politicians spent all their time banning books, banning drag queens when we can't even keep the heat on when it gets cold and we can't keep the air on when it gets hot. So maybe instead of obsessing so much about people's private parts. They should come together with Democrats, fix the grid, invest in renewables and save our state for future generations.
2: Um, You know, David, I was struck. We played some of the sound of Governor Abbott um, saying he did not want renewable energy uh, to be part of a portfolio of uh, tax incentives uh, for energy production in the state of Texas. And I guess that's owning the libs. But really, you expect at some point soon the pendulum tips And Republicans acquiesce to the fact that climate change is here. It's very real. And this becomes a matter of survival. Are you surprised we have not gotten to that point yet?
7: Well, I guess what's interesting to me is that they're doing that a little bit on the renewable side in many parts of the country. And Texas is one of them. Renewables are such a booming business that it's impossible to resist. And there's a big change there because just a few years ago, you know, oil and gas didn't want the state to intervene in energy policy. They wanted the state to get out of the way. But now that renewables are rushing forward, it takes the support of state to stop that revolution and advantage oil and gas. So now that's the new fight. But in general, I think renewables are moving forward as the, you know, taking seriously the climate challenge. The problem is on the adaptation side, we're just seeing more and more cruelty. And that's what's really striking about the air conditioning, yeah. you know, the signing of the bill banning water breaks for laborers outside. Um, this is a, an ugly feature, and I, I worry about it more globally than just in Texas, but um, I think it is, unfortunately, a global feature where now that we're seeing the consequences, we want to sort of protect ourselves and to some degree even punish other people mm-hmm. when we have the opportunity.
2: Yeah, I, and, and I, that's a, such a great point because it felt like, and uh, James, I don't know if you, you can elaborate further on this, that... It's almost like a Hunger Games attitude towards this. If you're unlucky enough to be one of the people who is marginalized or most vulnerable in terms of dealing with the worst effects of climate change because you're working class or you're poor, you don't have air conditioning, you can't take breaks because you're on the hourly clock, then tough luck. I mean, the notion that these people effectively deserve what they're getting seems to be at the root of some of this heartlessness around policy. I mean, we say oftentimes the cruelty is the point in Republican politics, but here it really seems like it's coming home to roost.
6: That's right. You know, I'm, I'm one of the youngest elected officials here in Texas, and I know that climate change is going to affect my generation much more than it's going to affect older generation, which is why I've introduced bills that would set ambitious emission standards for 2030, 2040, 2050, and try to marshal our state resources to fight climate change because Texas is the largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the nation, which means that if we get in the game, Texas can help lead the country and lead the world to a safer, cleaner, greener future, and in the process, create thousands of new jobs, new industries, new businesses, and that's why this shouldn't be partisan. You know, temperature is is nonpartisan. Um, it's not just getting hot in red parts of the state. It's not just getting hot in blue parts of the state. It's getting hot everywhere. And there is, in my mind, nothing more conservative than conserving our environment. There's nothing more capitalist than start starting the new industries of the future, the new businesses of the future. And frankly, there's nothing more Christian than protecting God's creation. So I. I I pray every night that my Republican colleagues will come to their senses and join us in this fight against climate change. Well,
2: th- there's the reality of Republican sort of red meat politics and what works for them as a as a strategy. And then there's the reality of constituents and citizens. Dealing with climate change and acknowledging that it's real. And I, I was, I was really interested in, um, a 2023 survey from this year, Yale and George Mason. Three quarters of Americans think global warming is happening. I mean, when you have smoke descending from Canadian wildfires, when you have mudslides and atmospheric floods in California, when you have droughts plaguing the southeast or heat waves, it's no longer a theoretical debate to own the libs or not, right, David? I mean, one wonders whether we're Like the Republican and Democratic debates on this are one thing. The rest of the country seems like they've sort of moved past it and they understand it's real.
7: I think in a lot of ways, the partisan dynamics have shifted favorably um, in the last couple of years, too. I mean, the IRA was this massive, massive bill, climate bill signed just before the midterms, and it didn't show up in that. Campaign at all. Republicans were not campaigning against the IRA. They were just like, we're going to let that go. Um, they didn't want to fight that fight. Um, unfortunately, you see some of these other issues cropping up now, um, not on renewable energy, which I think is a kind of a, there is some room for bipartisan consensus, but on how we're going to protect the most vulnerable. And there are, unfortunately, I think, the Republican party is is really failing us but i also think collectively we're normalizing what used to be completely unprecedented extreme events um you know we we're just talking about 5 500 year storms in in 5 years just that means we've had several millennia of intense weather concentrated in just a period of a few years and All of us, we're we're waking up to climate, we're worrying about it, but we're not worrying about it nearly as much as the science tells us we should be.
2: Well, I I am. (laughs) Privately, I'm terrified every day. The data is staggering and deeply distressing. David Wallace-Wells, so great to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Representative James Tallarico, very, very, very thankful for your time and everything you're doing down in the state of Texas when we come back. He was wrongly convicted of rape, and he became a sworn enemy of Donald Trump, but now he is on the verge of helping govern the biggest city in the country. That is next.
0: 34 years later, here I am doing something with this platform that they gave me. 13 years after we were accused, the truth came out.
2: That was political candidate Yusuf Salam appearing on this show back in April, now Salam's platform. Is his notoriety. He and four other black and Latino teenagers were wrongfully arrested and incarcerated for the rape and assault of a woman in Central Park in 1989. Back then, Donald Trump took out full page newspaper ads calling for the death penalty for the teens, a public campaign that thrust them into the national spotlight. But in 2002, the teens who had been known as the Central Park Five got a new nickname. The Exonerated Five, after DNA evidence linked someone else to the crime. Salam has taken the trauma from that experience and become a motivational speaker and author. And last night, he took a commanding lead in a New York City Council primary with nearly 51% of the vote. Now, a winner has not been declared, but it is looking very likely that Yusuf Salam will win. And because the seat is heavily Democratic, he is then likely to win the seat in November's election. Here is what he had to say last night.
0: Every single thing that happens to you, happens for you. Having to be kidnapped from my home as a 15-year-old child. To be lodged in the belly of the beast. I was gifted to turn that experience into the womb of America. I was gifted because I was able to see it for what it really was. A system that was trying to make me believe
2: that I was my ancestors' wildest nightmare. But I am my ancestors' wildest dream. That's our show for tonight.
1: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.